You are listening to the brand new episode of Unlevel the Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. What is happening? What is new? How are you guys doing? You guys staying, uh, you guys staying sane? Uh, I'm not 100% sure when this episode is going to come out, but we are recording this episode on the 24th of February. Um, and today's episode is a great one. And I know I say that every episode. Of course I'm going to say that every episode. But you know what? Like, religiously on this show, I am often surprised. <laughs> religiously, I'm often surprised. I'm always surprised on the show when I talk to guests because uh, I make some notes, right? So before I get a guest on the show, I make some notes. I do the research on them. You've heard this. Do the research on them. Make sure that I'm not being a dick and I, I know who they are and what's going on. Um, and then I make a couple notes just in case the show needs to be driven in a direction. Uh, in today's show, uh, essentially, we took our hands off the steering wheel and we let the car go. Uh, and uh, we go to some really honest places. We go to some great places. Uh, we celebrate cinema on the show. We celebrate movie making. We give a lot of really great insight into uh, how to direct films. We also give uh, a really good insight into how to communicate with folks and the power of understanding the format of the medium that you're that you're you're trying to get in touch with folks with whether that's movies whether that's texting whether that's just trying to have a conversation with your girlfriend um, all these things are really really important and I'm, I'm enjoying the direction of the show are you guys enjoying how the show is sort of breaking its its bounds right because this show initially was was uh, created as like a filmmaker show and this is how you make movies but i'm really enjoying a lot of the parallels that we're finding with individuals from all these different walks of life you know, whether we're talking to a chef or whether we're talking to a musician, or whether we're talking to uh, an artist or, you know, at some point I gotta get my landscaper in here who continues to make a cameo on the show with his leaf blower. And I'm sure we would agree on the same thing too. Uh, and the thing that's fascinating about having a position like I do right now where I'm talking to strangers like three or four times a week. And these are people that I've never met before. These are folks that I have about three seconds to meet before I start rolling. And it's interesting to see where these conversations go when we just talk and how a lot of these parallels all come to the same place. And is that because we all have the same needs? Maybe. Is that because we all watch the same shit? Could be. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think a lot of the stuff that we're talking about on the show is new. I don't think a lot of the stuff that we're talking on the show talking about on the show is a 2020 or 2021 thing. I think that a lot of this stuff comes from history. A lot of this stuff comes from being human beings. And it's funny how when we don't force things, right? When we're not forcing our agendas on things, when we're not forcing story arcs into stuff, uh, how this stuff always flows to the surface, how these themes always come above everything else. Uh, and so Today's show is a great one. Today's show, I have Craig Hamill on. Now, Craig is uh, responsible for the Secret Movie Club. And for those of you who don't live in Los Angeles, uh, the Secret Movie Club is this fantastic group of uh, screenings that happen out here in Los Angeles. And you know what? I don't even wanna, I don't even wanna give you an intro on it. I want you guys to meet Craig through his interview because I don't want to spoil it for you. Um, I'm going to say this, though. 
Uh, I was very excited to find The Secret Movie Club and it was suggested to me, I think Brett, Brett McCabe, who has been on the show before, I think Brett was the one that threw it my way. He knew that I'd be obsessed with it because back in the day in Boston, we used to do something similar. Not at this scale though. We used to do something smaller and similar and I'd do it for my friends. Uh, me and my old buddy Tony came up with a uh, sub called Cinema, which is very similar. Um, and uh, one of the side effects of this whole thing was being able to curate entertaining situations for people that we loved. Um, and uh, I feel like the core element of what the Secret Movie Club is just that. So strap yourselves in, it's gonna be a good one. And I wanna thank everybody for following me on Instagram as always at Mike Petchy or the podcast that I'm in love with the process pod. That's in love with the process POD on Instagram. I made the jump recently and spent way too much money on a new phone so that I can make my content better for you guys. Uh, we've done a couple of live sessions on Instagram that have uh, uh, looked better. Like it's actually streaming where the audio was sunk with the picture, <laughs> which you would think would be the simplest thing to do. Um, so yeah, trying to make adjustments and improvements for you guys. Um, big shout out to those of you who continuously jump on to my live streams. On Instagram, I gave out two free t-shirts, which I have to throw in the mail today to folks that did that, which was a lot of fun. Um, and I'm also trying out, I got invited by one of our prior guests on the show to, to do this Clubhouse app, um, which it's fascinating to see, I'm uh, logging into it now, it's fascinating to see the old people that come out of the, the woodwork. Um, but yeah, the uh, I wanna try this uh, this uh, Clubhouse app and see if maybe we can do uh, a live podcast with you guys. And we'll have questions and we'll have you guys come on the show and we'll talk about a bunch of stuff. Let me know if you're into that. Send me a message on Instagram, at Mike Petchy and say, yeah, let's try it. Let's try the Clubhouse thing. Or if you've already friended me on Clubhouse, you can find me on there at Mike Petchy on Clubhouse. If you friended me on there, uh, send me a message there. I think you can do messages there. I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, I literally installed the thing like two days ago. So uh, I think we're going to try to do something there. It'd be fun. Uh, big shout out, as always, to Liam for kicking ass on the show. He has been uh, doing a really great job on the post-production on our past few episodes. A lot of work on his end. So definitely go follow Liam on Instagram. Give him a shout out. Uh, it's uh, liam.d.obrien, I think, on Instagram. Uh, the links are all be below the episode. So uh, yeah, other than that, a bunch of really good stuff going on. I've been diving deep into uh, my Criterion channel, which I have no problem giving a shout out to those guys, even though they're not a sponsor in the show. Um, and I've been watching a bunch of really great old uh, Japanese noir which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, they also have all the old Toho Godzilla movies up there right now, which I went back and I watched Rodan. I, I might have talked about that in another episode, but watched Rodan recently and I really fucking forgot how much that movie uh, affected me as a kid. I really loved that movie. Um, and I'm super excited for the new uh, Godzilla vs. Kong movie. Very excited about it. I'm curious to see what Wingard does with it as a director. Um, and it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. So a lot of good stuff coming out. Um, also excited for uh, the Zack Snyder cut on HBO, 
which uh, I don't know if it'll be out when this episode comes out, but I can't wait to watch that. Um, and honestly, I'm very, very, very excited that they haven't released like the James Bond movie. They haven't released Top Gun. They're holding on to those things for when we can go back to the movies, uh, which I'm pumped about. And I just read somewhere, and I don't know if it's confirmed or not, that they started opening up theaters in New York to a select few people, which fucking yes. Fucking yes. And why am I talking about movie theaters? Well, you'll see it's a big theme of today's episode. So uh, very excited to have you guys here. Without further ado, let's get into it. Wow, I just hit the microphone. Let's start that again. Without further ado, let's get into it. Hanging out with Craig from The Secret Movie Club on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. So grab those noise canceling headphones. Find a great place to relax. What do you, We're still kind of at the back end of the winter. So what are you guys drinking these days? Right? And I don't mean just booze. Because, you know, maybe it's beer, but what are you drinking? You drinking, you drinking soda? Grab something fresh, right? Grab something that uh, is crisp. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Craig, thanks for joining me today, man. How are you? I'm good, Mike. Thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to have you on the show. I did a very vague intro of this because I wanted uh, to discuss this with you and have you sort of explain uh, what the Secret Movie Club is. Um, I wanted to let you know that I've already been to a few of your screenings. I think the, the most recent one I went to was The Thing that you guys were screening here in Glendale. Uh, oh, nice. Which was Yeah, a, so you, you've been out to the drive-in. Yes, which was a blast. It was a blast. It's like exactly what I needed. And to give you a little history of my LA experience, I just moved out here probably four months, four months right before COVID happened. So, oh man! So I got instantaneously locked down, and I was so excited to come out here because of the movie theater experiences and all these great cinemas and all these great places uh, playing old movies and like. <laughs> and then it was fucking COVID time. So. <laughs> So I would, uh, were you able to, before the shutdown happened, were you able to get out to any cool theaters or see any cool stuff? Uh, so I've been to the Arclight a few times. Years ago, I had a film screen at the Arclight. So that place is cool. I think uh, I, I was going quite a lot to the Alamo Draft House because I really enjoyed the whole yeah, yeah. bar experience and that whole thing. Uh, I haven't made it over to the Vista yet. I want to go to the Vista. Um, and uh, there's a couple other spots, but that's why... Dude, I, I'm having you on the show because I want you to get me pumped about it all. <laughs> well, yeah, you got it. I, uh, I, you know, it's it's so funny. Uh, for whatever it's worth, I tell you and your audience. Uh, during the the COVID shutdown, it's funny. I read a book on economics uh, years and years ago, and and didn't really understand eighty percent of it. I I just wanted to. <laughs> I was like, this is something I need to understand. But mm -hmm. one thing I did retain from the book was it said. In times of an economic slowdown, you should put all your energy into research and development uh, mm. because when you come out of it, uh, you know, you're hopefully going to have a better organization, but you're also going to have everything ready to go like lights on. And that just made sense to me. So during the COVID shutdown, we've been prepping 
our film series for when theaters reopen. Mm. And uh, we're going to be back at the Vista. I talk to the owner of the Lance Allspot every month and they do 35. We've got a 99 seat theater in downtown LA with 16 and 35 that's meant for deeper dives and things that might go all night. And then we do movies uh, actually at the movie palaces downtown, namely the million dollar theater. And then we also found another theater uh, in Beverly Hills that's equipped to do 70 millimeter. So we're prepping all of that and God willing, whenever, you know, this sort of indeterminate nexus of people feeling comfortable (laughs) and theaters reopening, we'll be back. Yeah, yeah, no, I I just read, I don't know how true it was, but I just read, and by read, I just got some stupid update online and I looked at the headline and uh, it was saying that they're finally opening up theaters for limited audiences in New York right now. I don't know if that's true or not, but. I I saw that too. And that's, you know, and it's, I, I don't know how you feel. It's this funny thing where I have this feeling that 2021 is gonna be wonky for sure, but there's gonna be a moment where people who are probably a little more bolder, probably younger people, people who feel invincible, there's uh-huh. going to be a point in like the late summer or fall where you're going to be in a movie theater in LA and you're going to be like, oh, we're back. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know when exactly that'll be. And that's not me endorsing recklessness at all. But I have this feeling that as the vaccines happen and people feel more comfortable and the numbers go down, I think we're going to find ourselves back in theaters at some point, maybe sooner than we thought. I think everyone thinks it's like Christmas time. I actually have a feeling it's going to be summertime, but I don't know. Oh, dude, I really, really want that to be the case. I really do. Uh, Because I miss it. I miss it. And I've got such a love for theaters. And as a filmmaker, I have a love for for screening movies in front of an audience. And as an audience goer, I have a love for experiencing movies uh, together with people and uh, other stuff that I want to talk about on the show, which has been a running theme of the past few episodes, like human curation. Uh, and th- I think that's such an important thing with cinema, I think. Um, so, but before we get into that, uh, let's just get into the secret movie club. So how did it start? So where did it come from? The <laughs> you wanted to crack up. Be like, well, we started as a suburban sex club. Uh, <laughs> this was back in the early '60s, mm-hmm. but then times changed and we moved into cinema. Um, the <laughs> no, that is not how audio. That's not sorry. Um, but to answer your question, um, so the funny thing is. I went to film school. Uh, I am a filmmaker and I had some buddies uh, who had made features ahead of me and I I was always picking their brains. Um, You know, what advice do you have? What advice do you have? And they they actually said something that really pierced me to my soul, which was, uh, you know, we thought making a feature was 100% of the game. It's not. It's like maybe 49% of the game. Hmm. 51% of the game is distribution, exhibition, marketing. Because if you don't come close to breaking even, it's very unlikely anyone will ever give you money to make a second movie. Hmm. And it was funny to hear that because, you know, when you're a filmmaker, as you are, Mike, uh, you know, it, it, I think rightfully, a lot of your mind is, is this a good story? Is this a good script? You know, is this... but you do need people to tell you absolutely you got to do that, but you also need to figure out a way 
for whatever you do to get out there so people want to fund you again. Yeah. Um, and, and it's that weird thing everyone deals with in, in cinema. Anyway, in 2016, I had this little voice in my head. I went to USC film school, and when I was there, I would show movies. I just did this because I wanted to do it. I, I would show movies and invite filmmakers, and we were really lucky. We got, like, Michael Mann to speak about Heat, and yeah. Russ Meyer to speak about Faster Pussycat Kill Kill before he passed away right at the end. Wow. We got Robert Wise before he passed away to speak about West Side Story and, and Alan Davis. DP right of ET and Empire of the Sun to come in Bugsy. So uh, this voice was like, well, if you do that and you show movies um, and I'm also I, I love film as in 35 millimeter film. I love shooting on film. I love cutting on film. Um, and I'm not a Luddite. I always have to say this. I do all my documentaries digitally. I love digital. I'm blown away by what Roger Deakins is doing digitally. I, I totally get it. But I personally, I still think that my medium of choice is film. If 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 I if I have the resources and it's around. Anyway. Well, so hold in, on, hold on. Let me interrupt you. Yeah. Let me interrupt you here because please. this is a really cool rabbit hole. And I've kind of touched upon it in other episodes, but personally, I understand why it is that you would like that. And, and you can agree or disagree with me. I feel like when you decide to shoot on film or if you're editing on film, it really changes the process a lot. So it changes the way the sets run. It changes the way you think about stuff. Things are a bit more precious. The idea of shooting things is a little bit more precious. Um, is that the case for you or is it purely an aesthetic vibe for you? You know, it's a great question, and it's funny. I think for filmmakers, you're getting at the, is there a God question in a weird way right now for, for like, all of us who who believe in cinema? Yep. And um, I, I want to say real clearly, and then I want to answer your question very directly, because the way you asked, it's exactly how I think. But um, I want to be clear that I have seen digital masterpieces for 20 years now. Uh, Celebration, 28 Days Later, Sicario, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Melancholia. Uh, I mean, it's it, there, anyone who's like, you can't make a, an amazing movie uh, digitally, I don't buy that at all. And if and when film goes away, I'm just gonna, I'll get my Aria Alexa or whatever and I'll shoot on the Aria Alexa or whatever comes after it. So, and I even like, just to talk shop, that's my favorite digital cameras, the Aria Alexa. Mine too, so, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, and I, they're all tools and I like what Deacon said. They're all, to, and that's the way you gotta look at it. Otherwise you're gonna be left behind. So I wanna be real, real clear. That being said, I have found personally that when I shoot on film and when I edit on film, my brain works differently. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I love like as an editor, Eisenstein and David Lean, and even like how Spielberg and a Scorsese cut. And I love like coming up with, or Jean-Luc Godard, how, how, how Godard cuts. So um, I know this sounds nuts to anybody who knows what I'm talking about. I still prefer if I can like cutting on flatbed, mm -hmm. which I know is nuts to people. I love like, that, dude. I love it, dude. That's, okay. I, and that's it, how I came yeah. up was doing that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And so I want to throw it to you too. I don't want to just be a ramble damble here, but, but bottom line is that when I cut on a flatbed, I'll be like, oh, I like, I can cut musically. I'm going to go 16 frames, eight frames, 16 frames. Or I'll be like, oh, wait, if I run this sound over that image or I pre-lap the sound or post-lap the sound, you just think differently and you get to me this kind of like amazing cinematic dialectic that I know we'll have and will retain, but I don't think it comes as immediately when you cut digitally. And then shooting, I'm not someone who has to see what the image looks like on the set. I mean, obviously no one wants to like get the dailies the next day and be like, oh, we have the lens cap was on or there's a hair <laughs> in the gate or whatever. Mm -hmm. But 
I do like what you were saying about, and it is how I feel. Um, when you hear film rolling through a camera and you tell people, Hey guys, <laughs> we got a three to one shooting ratio and that's it. That's everyone. I just feel everybody rise. But like I said, I've shot digitally. I'm not a Luddite, but that's just me personally still. Well, dude, it makes sense. I like the, the thing, no, hit me, man. Disagree. No, no, I don't disagree. But if you talk to my DP, he's always trying to get me to shoot film. And I, these days, I'm like, I got to do digital. I got to do digital these days just because of the economics of it. Um, right. But the theory of going back to like my old film school days where we were doing like reversal black and white 16 and doing all that stuff. The theory is great because in my mind, you want that more attentive crew. You want that more attentive uh, group of actors. You want people that aren't going, yeah, give me three seconds trying to finish a fucking Instagram or a Twitter post <laughs> before they walk over and they move a light. You know what I mean? Like you, you want that mode on set. And that's to me more than anything else is what I like about it. And when you start talking about the old platter style or Steenbeck style of editing, uh, it's very mechanical. And I love that. I love the fact that there's a there's a big switch where you're and you're going. You know what I mean? And and the fact that you're cutting and you're you're taping and you're moving through this stuff, it everything becomes a lot more deliberate because you're having to be physical. Like you're physically moving your body to make these edits. You're physically doing it as opposed to like leaning back in the chair. <laughs> and screaming to your mom for another bowl of Cheetos while you're fucking <laughs> clicking on the mouse. You know what I mean? So like there's a huge difference in that, in the human element. Because also if you're cutting for reels, reels, if you're cutting film, and I had just, it's funny that you talk about Michael Mann because I just watched all the behind the scenes stuff on Heat again. Mm. Um, and he was talking about the deadline that they had for Heat because they had to get it out pretty quick. And you might know more about this than I do, but... At least from the interview, he was saying that it was a fucking war room in the edit room because they had like <laughs> multiple shifts and multiple people doing stuff. And he said there was this really great camaraderie that he felt with all the editors and the assistant editors and the people that were in there doing this to make it to get it done on fucking time. Um, and that is amazing because these days when I'm cutting, I'm either cutting by myself or I'm cutting with an editor and it's usually just me and the editor. And I try to break the mode by being by walking in with like, here's a bunch of barbecue and beers and shit. Let's oh, have nice. fun, you know, instead of having it be the. Do you need an assistant editor? Yeah. You're supplying barbecue <laughs> and beer. <homie. laughs> but, you know, the the and the opposite end of that is what you see a lot with commercial edits. So, like, I've been a commercial director for years and sitting in an agency room in an edit room in the agency it's like, can we hand out shotguns so we can kill each other? Because <laughs> most of the time, it's just people sitting there on their phones, on their iPads, and every uh -huh. once in a while, they look up and the poor editor is reading the room going, is this right? Is this not right? And then they sit there and go, uh, do you think you can shave off like three frames on that, on the end of that? And you're just like, dude, you haven't been paying attention to anything. And you're well, fucking- Well, and, and you know, and, and what you're saying, Mike, probably goes to a deeper- I think societal transition phase, uh, which is that, you know, there's something to be said and I don't want to be dogmatic. This it's, it's always such a torturous, delicate path, such a pilgrim's progress on saying these things, yes. but there's something about a sacred sense when you're creating. And, um, it, you know, like 
I try not to be the grumpy old man, but I've got two kids and a third on the way. And my wife and I have been, have been together for eight years. And you know, like at dinner time, I'm just like, I don't want to see a phone anywhere. Mm -hmm. Now my kids are too young to even have phones, but like we all put our phones away. We all sit at the table. We all look at each other. There's no TV on. There's no phone anywhere. There's some music playing and we're all talking about the day. And I'm trying to get my three-year-old to tell me about preschool. And he's looking at me like, I just want to eat my Mac and cheese, but we're, (laughs) we're, we're all together. And I think that, you know, I've heard about directors now who have like policies that uh, your phone has to stay in your trailer, that kind of thing. It can't, can't be on the set. And I'm, I mean, and again, we're all different. We all have different creative processes, but I'm someone who, frankly, like when I'm on the set, I don't think anyone should have a phone. I want everybody giving me a hundred and I, and I want to give them 200%. And I really believe in cinema. Like I, I really believe in storytelling and this thing that humanity has been doing for a hundred thousand years. And if all this stuff is going to distract and, and dilute it by 5%, 10%, F it, it shouldn't be there. Yep. Cause I, I don't know how you feel, but what I'm saying is a bigger thing. Like the tools are the tools. It's almost a sensibility. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I, I just, I've seen a lot of movies in the last 10 years where I'm like, that was good. Like, but I feel it was good at like 88%. And it's, I want to see the 92% movies again, the 95% movies. And I just wonder if I, 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 I know I'm being kind of mathematical here, but I wonder if we're getting way more 88% movies because we're diluting the product by 5% with all this stuff that's distracting us. I, dude, I, I would actually agree with you. And say that, you know, I think films suffer from the monitor disease. You know I, what I mean? Where you've got the monitor in the back and everybody's like hyper focused on that. And there, I think it's a lot of the magic has been traded in for tech and uh, like how the tech works and how the gear works and how all this stuff works. And uh, look, this isn't, I'm going to say this again on the show. I'm going to continue to berate <laughs> my audience with this. This isn't two old guys complaining about the past. I guarantee you that if you're a young person and you go to a set and you're lost in the magic of the set and for some reason you're not on your fucking phone and you're you're really immersed in this thing, you're going to fall in love with it. The same that, way that absolutely. these young young folks are like, "Hey, I can watch this shit on my phone." I guarantee you that if you go to one of your guys' screenings or any screening and go watch that same fucking movie, it is going to be so much fun. Well, and if I can, if I can piggyback onto that, I, you know, I'm not a great logician. I wish I was, but I actually think there's an argument that the younger generation uh, does get it in the sense that, you know, I, some of my favorite content is seeing what somebody puts up on YouTube or TikTok and how inventive they get with okay, I've got, you know, like oh, TikTok or whatever, I've got to stitch together th- these segments or I'm going to use this because it's bite size. And you can tell when somebody is really engaged with the form and telling a story, mm-hmm. you can feel it. It doesn't matter if it's a, you know, a three hour movie shot on 70 millimeter or a 20 second thing in a series of 10, 20 second things shot on a phone that's posted on, on a TikTok. I guarantee you, whether it's a 15 year old or an 80 year old, if they're really serious about what they're doing, that sense of guys, I need everybody to focus or team. I need everybody to focus. That's going to exist on any set, anything. If you're really committed to what you're doing. And I just, I think people need to cherish and preserve 
that faith and belief and that commitment because that's, you know, part, I don't know. I, it just cinema to me is that spiritual thing, or maybe that's a loaded word, but cinema to me can be that meaningful thing. I agree with you, man. And, and I, I agree with your statement on the talent that you can find in these shorter mediums and the, what I've told folks prior on the show, and I've talked to a lot of YouTubers and a lot of YouTube content creators. The difference is as you, hit the ceiling creatively, right? So like you're a young filmmaker and you're you're doing like your own little scary ghost pieces or like maybe you're like a younger David Sandberg and you're creating stuff in your house with your wife and trying to put all these things together. You have grandiose ideas of making Hollywood films, make these movies mm. that we grew up and we loved. You eventually hit a glass ceiling on what you can pull off by yourself, right? Right. And so then the move is how do I, like you were saying, how do I stimulate a bunch of strangers <laughs> to have the same passion that I have? And how do I break through a lot of the mindless sort of stuff that we do as strangers? Because generally most folks can't spend uh, three minutes of quiet time with themselves. They just can't. They're distracted a hundred different ways. I'm gonna go on my phone, I'm gonna check and see if I got any likes, I'm gonna check and see if I got any emails, I'm gonna check all this stuff. And it's like, no, 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 no. How do you acknowledge the fact that when we when we get a green light on a movie, I want a fucking lottery ticket, right? Yeah. Someone handed me a Lamborghini and I'm showing up in your driveway and I'm opening the door going, get in. Don't stand there and tell me to wait a second because you have to finish texting somebody. You drop the fucking phone, you get in the Lamborghini, grab the Uzi and let's do it, man. And that's, that's <laughs> what filmmaking should be, you know? All right, it's that time. It's time to take a moment to thank the men and women that make the show possible. I'm talking about our sponsors. Um, and we have a bunch of really great returning sponsors as always. And I'm gonna give some plugs to folks that aren't necessarily sponsoring the show because why the fuck not? I plug people that I like. First, let's start with our good friends over at Puget Systems. If you're a filmmaker, if you're a photographer, if you're a music producer, if you're just a fucking gamer, and you're trying to use your computer and you're getting that pinwheel of death and you're like, man, why is it taking so fucking long for this thing to render out? After I did the software update, suddenly my shit seems to be running slower, right? The dreaded slower shit. So I had to buy a new fucking phone. Um, <clears throat> do yourself a favor, build yourself a PC. <gasps> PC, yes, PC. PCs are faster. PCs are more affordable. PCs are upgradable. PCs can be custom built for your needs. I know you're at home going, I don't know how to build a PC. Well, you don't need to. I've done the hard work for you. I've looked around and I know we're a whole culture right now that is used to being cared for by a larger company, by a larger competitor. They've always cared for us. Sign up for our care program and we'll always keep you safe and you're not allowed to open up your case because we're afraid that you'll fuck with it. But We'll always make sure that it's running. It never crashes. Bullshit. But ah, never crashes, right? Uh, no, I found the opposite. I found a company, Puget Systems, that designs custom-made PCs, gasp, for your needs, right? You can go to their website. They have a bunch of different baseline packages that you can choose from, but you can choose for a system based upon the software you're gonna use. 
Believe it or not, there's different hardware that works better for different software platforms, right? Sure, you can build like a run-of-the-mill, works kind of well for everything kind of machine, but if you're someone that is like, look, I'm fucking serious about being a Premiere editor or I'm fucking serious about using uh, AutoCAD or whatever fucking audio program that you're using, these guys know. They beta test all the gear that's out there. They beta test all the hardware. They tested hard with this, all these software platforms. So they have the answers for you. So like if you were gonna build your own PC, you'd just be looking at the charts, right? You go, what is the newest graphics card? Okay, I'll throw that in there. These guys are testing whether or not it's worth spending an extra $300 on that graphics card. Does it actually make Premiere run faster? These guys share all their information on their website. Go to PugetSystems.com. It's gonna change your world when it comes to building a computer. I can't say enough great things about them. They're a great company, a family-owned company, an honest company. These guys support artists. They've been supporting my work for years. Um, they're my pals. I love them. Uh, so go check them out. Go to PugetSystems.com. Also, supporting us are our good friends over at Quasar Science. These guys make amazing LED lights. One of the best advancements in our business over the past 10 years has been lighting and how lighting is done, the quality of light. A lot of that gear is kind of magical these days. Um, and so it's really changed the game. And I know a lot of you guys have been asking for me to do another lighting episode. We'll get there. Um, and lighting is still magical to a lot of you guys, right? It was to me for years. How does it work? What is the contrast ratio? What the fuck is, like, how does this stuff happen? It took me a long time to figure it out. And you know what? I'll give you a little nugget. If you want to learn how light reacts to a human's face, just use a bare bulb. Or you can get one of Quasar's uh, LED tubes because you can move it around. It doesn't get hot in your hand. And just move that light around a subject's face and watch how those shadows change the tone of the shot. Pretty cool shit. Go to quasarscience.com. Check them out if you're looking for some new lights for your kit. If you want to impress your gaffer, uh, go get yourself some bicolor LEDs. Go get yourself some rainbow LEDs. Uh, their stuff is fucking phenomenal. Can't say enough great things about them. And their website is a lot of fun. Go watch their puppet show. Uh, it's really good shit. So go to quasarscience.com. Uh, also, want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Movie Tees. That is M-O-V-I-T-E-E-S, MovieTees.com. And I've talked about these guys a lot on the show. We did a whole episode around them. What I love about them is that they 100% uh, are nerds about movies. They create t-shirts based upon the corporate companies in the cult movies that we love. What does that mean? Well, I've got a t-shirt that says Cyberdyne Systems on it. What's the movie? I've got a t-shirt that says Nostromo on it. What's the movie? Uh, they have t-shirts for Jack's Demolition. What's the movie? Uh, Jackie Treehorn Productions. Okay, what movie is that? Go to MovieTees.com and click on Choose a Movie and you'll see all these really great nerdy t-shirts. These are the type of shirts that you wanna wear when you're on set. These are the type of t-shirts that you wanna wear when you go to a secret movie club screening. You wanna be that guy in the audience because those other nerds are gonna look at you and go, man, this guy fucking loves Heat, right? I know that movie, Heat, right? Fuck yeah. Meet you make a lot of friends if you buy some of these movie tees, 100%. And if you buy it, use our promo code. We'll put the promo code below the episode. 
I think the promo code's just ILWP. Don't quote me on that, but we'll put it below the episode and you save 10% on your next purchase. And their t-shirts are not that expensive. So definitely go check them out. That is movietees.com. Also supporting the show are good friends over at Dale Strong. So Dale Strong Knives. You hear me on the show talking about being a cook, being someone that likes to create an emotional experience with food. The same way I like to create an emotional experience with movies. And one of the most important tools in my whole kit, it is like owning a red camera. It is like having a quasar tip, is having a good knife, a chef's knife. You do think about how many tasks you use a knife for when you're using, when you're cooking, right? So garlic, right? You're not just cutting garlic, you're using a knife to smash garlic, cutting through tomatoes. How obnoxious is it when you go to cut a tomato and the knife doesn't even pierce the skin? So then you're pushing on it and it's squeezing out all the juice, it's squeezing out everything that you really love about it, right? Or if you're going to cut an onion and the knife isn't sharp enough to get through the first layer of skin and it slides and cut your fucking finger off, right? Go to Dale Strong. These guys make really crazy, awesome chef's knives. And if you guys are movie nerds, which you are, these knives are literally, they look like they're props for action films. I love their knives. Super sharp, super reliable. I can't say enough great things about them. We've got an amazing promo code below this episode. Use that and get more money off their knives. Their knives are incredibly affordable. So as you're listening to my shows and you're like, Mike, I want to try to uh, try out some of these recipes. I want to try to learn how to cook more. Is there a tool that I should have? Yes, 100%. And this isn't me just selling shit to you. You need a chef's knife, 100%. I don't want to see <laughs> footage of you guys cutting with a steak knife, right? You're going to cut an onion with a fucking steak knife? What the hell is wrong with you? Get a chef's knife. Not only are they sharp, but it changes the way you use the knife. So like you're rocking it, you're doing cutting, you're doing faster cutting, you're doing safer cutting. I love my Dale Strong knives. So go check them out, dalestrong.com. I'm going to give a big shout out because we don't really talk about it much in the show because we get off on really good tangents, but a big shout out to the Secret Movie Club. Go to secretmovieclub.com. These guys have been putting on amazing screenings for years. Right now is the 24th, so these screenings have already happened, but for instance, they're screening Coming to America, the original with Eddie Murphy, 10 Things I Hate About You is being screened, Harold and Maude is being screened, Uh, amazing screenings. These are those movie screenings that that we're talking about. These are the way to go see film. Go see it with other fans, go hang out in groups, If it's still COVID time when this episode comes out, they do really great drive-in experiences where they're incredibly safe about it. You don't have to get out of your car. Uh, They're real, like I went to the thing and I had such a fucking blast with it. Can't say enough great things about the Secret Movie Club. And they also have custom posters up here. Looks like they've, and I didn't actually talk to them about it on the show, I should have. But looks like they hired artists to make custom posters for their screenings and they're really cool. And they're selling a bunch of that stuff up here. Really cool custom art for like Drunken Master 2, Batman with Michael Keaton, uh, Kurosawa stuff. Oh, that Akira one's really good. The Alien poster's really great. Holy shit, they got some really good stuff up here. 
Blood Simple, Brazil. Craig knows what he's doing. So go check it out. Go to thesecretmovieclub.com. There you can buy tickets for the shows. Uh, you can also pick up movie poster. Uh, and he also has a podcast. It's no strange thing that he's really good on this show. There's a podcast, the Secret Movie Club podcast is up there as well. So go check him out. And if you want more from our show, if you're a newcomer and you are like, wow, there's so many episodes, where do I start? Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. Jesus, Michael. Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There you can pick episodes that have been curated based upon subject material. So if you just want to hear the directors, if you want to hear the movie folks, if you want to hear chefs, some musicians, we're all there. Or if you were getting into the show and you're like, what are the best episodes? We have the top 20 episodes up there as well, which I need to adjust. I keep saying that I haven't had time because I think there's some newer ones that need to be on that list. Um, so go check it out. And you can support us there. There's a donation button. Uh, you can find all of our sponsor links there. And for each one of the episodes, like today's episode, we'll post all sorts of supporting links on a specific blog page there with like movie links, trailer links, all sorts of stuff. So it's a great place to go and support a show. And if you want to support us without reaching into your own wallet, sign up for a free trial at Audible. You do audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. The link is below the episode. You notice the theme here, guys? The links are below. Um, sign up for a free trial if you haven't done so already on another podcast. Um, use our code and you will get 30 days for free, a free audiobook. You'll get access to all their audio content for 30 days. Uh, it doesn't cost you anything. We get paid. After the 30 days, you're going to want to stick around because you're deep into reading. I have a ton of books I have to catch up on there. Um, but if you have to cancel, no big deal. We still get paid. Whatever. Right? So that's how you do it. That's how you support us. And click all the links below the episode. Pick a link and click on it for our sponsors. Just go through the process of doing it. If anything, just to remind them that you heard us talking about them on our show. Okay, that's it. My rant is done. Thank you so much. Let's get back into it. It, 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 you know, it, it, and I'm I'm someone uh, I I say this a lot, and it is it's kind of a joke, but probably not not as well as a lot of humor is. I, I'm psychotically optimistic, and I <laughs> and I, I think I get that from my mom, or so my siblings tell me. Uh, the and I really, I, you know, there's always when you look at movies, there's there's always these fascinating uh, ebbs and flows. So sound comes in. And there's that like two or three years where most of the times they were planting the mic in like the plant bush or the chandelier. You know, if you're somebody who loves movies and someone takes you through it. And it was like silent cinema in the late 20s. The camera was doing all this, you know, Murnau's last laugh, whatever. And then suddenly it's just locked off shots and it's directed like a Broadway play, but the camera doesn't move at all. And people just stand and you're like, oh no. But then people are like, what the F? And then they they change it. They're like, look, we'll figure out the sound. We're going to move the camera and then color and yada, yada. And, and I I do think you're going to find people now being like, whoa, 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 wait, like we got to, you know, hold on to what was great about the last phase while we're plowing forward and advancing and progressing into the new one. And I think that those people who 
They're not traditionalists, but neither are they throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's, you know, they're studying the old masters, but they're thinking for themselves and they're figuring things out. I mean, that's where the masterpieces are going to come, I think, the way they always do. And I believe they're going to come and will keep coming. I, dude, I 100% agree with you. I'm a, I'm a, if that's a church, I, I attend that church every Sunday. So like, like that's, Word. that is, that is my same vibe with this. And I think that, that goes from every stage of making a film. I think that goes from how you put together a film, how you plan a film, to how you shoot a film, to how you do the post on film. And most importantly, and I think a big hot topic right now, which I am totally happy on jumping on the bandwagon with, is how we watch these things and how mm. we view these things and how we tell each other about these things. I think that is like, like you were saying, Distribution is like what? What did you say? Fifty percent? Fifty-one percent? Everyone, yeah, well, and yeah, the message I got was it's fifty-one percent. As in, you need to really understand it if you want to have a career. And I, I think that screening and being a part of that screening process with humans is is in that fifty-one percent. I think it's the most important aspect. Because why the fuck else are we doing this? Like, well, to totally, and and I, you know, Mike, maybe to to whatever you 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 take me wherever you want to take me. Uh, the. But one of the things, you know, you and I are recording this uh, still during uh, COVID shutdowns in Los Angeles. Theaters haven't been open for a year. Going, yeah. It'll be a year 15th in like two weeks. Um, and one of the things that really actually for me has gotten me really excited. I almost don't want to say it because I feel like I'm sitting on something secret, but I will say it because, you know, we got to help each other out. Everybody, that's just the way you got to live your life is we've been doing drive-ins since August and we mostly sell them out. And the, that's not, I think, any comment on like, oh, we're amazing at what we do. I really think that's a comment on people want to get out of their apartments and they want to all be together. And even if it means right now they're all together with cars, you know, you came to the thing. The thing was sold out, John Carpenter's 1982, the thing on a Thursday night. Mm -hmm. We had a max capacity crowd, 120 cars, and everybody was honking and loving the movie because there's something in us where when we're all together, everything gets amplified exponentially. And to me, when people are like, I don't know about you, and now I want to throw this to you as a question, but I have read so many articles about like the death of the movie theater, the death knell of the movie theater. And in my head, I get it. I get why you would write that during COVID. It's, I mean, I did, they've been shut down. But it, but if you just play chess with that, I'm like, do you think anybody wants to stay in their apartment when all of these things are lifted? Do you think like for the next few years, people are like, no, I want to continue to watch everything on my laptop. No, I'm, I'm just going to like, I'm single and I'm going to stay in this. The moment that things are safe, you're going to see people getting together. You're going to see people going to coffee shops. You're going to see people going back to movie theaters. And I, I always say like, it's like people were writing these articles and just focusing on the 1918 influenza epidemic and not the roaring 20s that happened two years later. You, <laughs> like, why do you think we had the roaring 20s? People were like, F, no, I don't want to stay in this tenement apartment building. I'm listening to jazz and I'm getting out. Dude, I, I, I want that to be, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's this level of, I keep saying like, what's the holiday that the world is going to fucking nail down? Like there should be a holiday <laughs> after this, like the, the day where everybody just goes and gets hammered. It's way <laughs> too much barbecue. You know what I mean? Like there has to be whatever the date is set where everybody, whether you're in Italy or whether you're in Africa, everybody's partying on the same fucking day. There needs to be something like that after this. Um, and 
the thing that I'm really excited about is being able to go back and watch things in the movie theater again. And and like you said, I was amazed at how many people were at the fucking thing screening. And this this was at you know Glendale Seals parking lot. It was like, and I'm like, what the fuck? And the movie was great. The uh, the screening of it was fantastic, but. I spent most of the time talking to my buddy in the car because I've seen the movie a hundred times right. and I was able to have this experience. Like, you know what's really great about this scene here is that this happened and this happened and this happened. And it was, I found it to be such a a needed sort of cathartic experience for me uh, as opposed to like, my, like last night where I'm sitting here with my girlfriend, I'm like, what do you want to watch on TV? I don't know. What do you want to watch on TV? I don't know. Let's go through the fucking cues. All right, this this channel sucks. This channel sucks. And you just go through it. And you're like, I can't find anything. And then she was nah, reading. That's the worst. Dude, she was reading online. Uh, she's like, you know what we should watch? I heard that Tarantino recommended watching what he considers one of the best documentaries ever. And I was like, what is this? And immediately, I was like, okay, what are we, what are we talking about? She's like, let's watch Hands on a Hard Body. Mm. And how was that? I keep, Everyone keeps mentioning this movie. I've heard about this movie for 10 years. Okay. So this is the power of human curation. So like if she hadn't got that information from her friends, which was like a pass down from Tarantino saying that this is the best ever thing, and it was just on, she wouldn't watch it. She'd be like, uh, okay. And I probably wouldn't watch it. I'd be like, whatever. But because it was loaded that way, we actually watched it and were immersed in it. And the piece is fucking great. Like it's fantastic. But we needed that initial push to get over the... Uh, this was shot in the 90s and then me being a nerd going, this is only 60 frames per second. I'm not going to be able to sit through this. And then the audio being kind of like whatever. But then once we got over that and we needed that human push to get us over the first five minutes. And it's not right. that the first five yeah, minutes yeah. aren't good. It's just because it isn't on a fucking glossy fucking screen. It's like four by three. You know what I mean? All the stupid bullshit that most audiences are like, I don't watch Citizen King because it's in black and white. You're like, okay, dude. And so the human curation is what got us into that movie. And I fucking love it movie. It's fantastic, dude. I know. I, I've heard about it for years and years and years. I just, uh, you can't see me because we have our cameras off. I just wrote it down on my, uh, gotta, gotta screen it list. And, and it, what you're saying about human curation, there's that weird thing in human nature. And I'm sure a psychologist or anthrop uh, anthropologist could tell us or sociologist, it could get into it way more. Maybe you can, but there's that thing where you always feel more comfortable with a reference. So if you're looking for an accountant or a mechanic or a doctor, I mean, I think it's why Yelp is so big and you look and you feel like, you know, and now you have to be wary because you have to be like, are these fake Yelp reviews or real <laughs> Yelp reviews or, you know, how many people did they buy? How many, but when you get three people you really trust telling you, hey, you, this person's the accountant you need, you're like, great. Um, and I think that when someone tells you, it's like you, I've, I've heard hands on a hard body. Um, you know, I think I've read it, but now you mentioned it. I wrote it down. And the likelihood that that'll be a movie I see in the near future is much more than if I just open up a queue and look at a thousand squares and I'm like, I guess I want that one. Right. The, the power of, of someone recommending something. And actually, I think there's something about connecting too, because then you get the reciprocal thing of being able to go back to that person and saying, Hey, I saw hands on a hard body. I want to talk to you about it now. It's, it's, it's a, it's like you're beginning this chain reaction of interaction and communication and engagement. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's fun. And then on top of everything, you're not just remembering the movie for being a good movie. You're remembering the experience of finding the movie. 
You remember the experience of the person that presented that to you. Or maybe you're remembering the experience of sitting down and having beers and discussing the fucking movie. Like that all rolls into the experience of cinema, which I think we've kind of lost sight of where it's it's not just about whether or not it looks really pretty or not, or whether or not like we're roping in as many fucking actors and characters as we possibly can into a scene. It's the experience of how it affects us, how it affects uh, our friends and how it affects the communication between the two of us. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. You know, it, it, it's interesting because now you have me on this train of thought and um, I, and I, it's weird. I don't want to get into the whole thing, but uh, for people who listen to this, whenever at this very moment, you and I are recording this at the end of February, yep. there's a new doc on uh, 2021. There's a new doc on HBO about the, the Dylan Farrow allegations against Woody Allen and Mia Farrow and that whole thing. And, and whenever this comes up and it's coming up, it's come up a lot in the last four or five years, I always really struggle with it because the um, filmmaker who made me first aware of filmmakers was Woody Allen mm-hmm. when I was 13 years old. And I had loved movies before then. I mean, I was, I was, my, my family is a movie family and we were watching movies from when, you know, two. Uh, but I, I remember um, I had this image in my head of a man with horn rimmed glasses, red hair. Uh, and it, and I went to my local video store in Orange County. My folks divorced. My mom lived in Laguna Beach. My dad stayed in, in Los Angeles. And I just rotate between the two weeks with mom, weekends with dad. Mm-hmm. But I had this image and I go to the video store and I'm like, da, da, da. And the, the video store clerk, and it was this uh, five Persian brothers who ran Video <laughs> Laguna. I remember, they, they were awesome. And they were like, you are talking about Annie Hall. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's amazing. You know that. So they, <laughs> they got me Annie Hall. I watched it and uh, I remember that began this journey where for the next two weeks I watched everything that Woody Allen had done up through I'm 43 I was born in 1977 so at that time it was like 90 91 92 so it was through shadows and fog I remember it vividly but but to, to get to your point um and then I'm like, well, wait, you know, what's Woody Allen about? And I start reading Woody Allen interviews and he's always talking about this guy, Bergman, Igmar Bergman. And I'm like, oh man, we, you know, as a 14 year old, I'm like, oh, I remember that night playing chess with death image. I didn't know what that was about. So then I watch Bergman, then I'm reading Bergman and Bergman is, you know, he's talking about Fellini and then I'm like, oh, okay. I also watch Fellini. And then <laughs> Fellini, I discover comes out of, you know, Italian neorealism. And then so I'm watching to and, and it's, it's this great thing where between your friends and the filmmakers who influence you and who influence them, suddenly all these recommendations and references, I guess what you're saying, Mike, human curation, I mean, that really leads you into that, you know, Alexandrian library of cinema. Yeah, I agree, man, 100%. And and it feels more pure, right? Because it's hard because I'm, I think I'm a year younger than you, dude. So we're- Are you 78, 79? 78, so- Yeah, I'm 77, yeah. So uh, for for me, it's a it's a tough game because when we were kids, you know, we were starting to really be like bombarded with the advertising world, and it, this was when Reagan sort of like made it legal for you to market to children again, and so like you've got <laughs> Transformers, you've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you got all these fucking cartoons that essentially were commercials for fucking plastic action figures. You know, and then you had the advent of blockbusters with with Spielberg and with these guys. So a big portion of why I got excited about a lot of these big movies was the advertising, was the marketing, was how they were pushed to me. And so it's this weird dichotomy because now 
my comment that I wanted to go to was like, ah, it just feels a little less genuine these days because most of the stuff that is marketed to to us is for money, but it's always been that. It's always been that way, at least for me. So, And that's, that's what I would say, and just take it where you will, is I think that's always really key, whoever you are, is to never think entropically that things have gotten worse in your lifetime. I, I think that's an illusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that these forces, good and bad, have always been probably at war to a point of almost balance uh, since time immemorial. Yeah. And the, the, the names may be different and the, you know, the factors and conditions may be different, but you know, like I, we, we showed Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and I, uh, the Disney, which is like, I rewatched it. I was like, this movie's incredible, but I went back to read about it. And that was the first movie to have a soundtrack album. And that movie had toys as like, and that was in 1937. And yeah. you, you know, so it, I think you always just, it's always good. To, like Shakespeare said, modest doubt is the beacon of the wise. Mm. And I think it's always good just to be like, meh. Maybe it's always been like, and it's a tough thing, and it's a tough thing to do because as you, as you get older, you start to see rhythms, right? You start to see yeah. patterns, and then you're sort of examining this thing, going, "Well, this is what's going to happen." And so then you find comfort in your rhythms and patterns, and then you uh, start to romanticize your youth because you're like, "Ah, that's not when I was seeing rhythms and patterns, so maybe it was better back then." You know what I mean? And I, you're right. It's a fine well, it, fucking yeah. line. It's a total fine fucking. I'm I'm always trying to check myself when I say shit on the show because it's like it. I I don't remind myself being a Generation Xer as you are. Uh, we weren't. There was a lot of people that annoyed the fuck out of me that were Generation Xers. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not like it's not like we were a perfect <laughs> group. Uh, but it was just different than it was, and there's nothing wrong with that. It sometimes I think it's just a little frustrating because you feel like our obsession with youth. As a culture, and we're off way off on tangent here, but our obsession with let's youth. Let's do it, homie. This is what conversation's all about. All right, let's jump in then. Um, but our obsession with youth, right, uh, tends to uh, make us forget a lot of the lessons that were learned by the folks that came before us. And so there's no, there's no strange thing that you've got like 15 year old, 14 year old, you know, pop stars that are making all sorts of money because. Yeah, I can get super cynical about it. And it's like they're easier to control and bop, 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 bop. But also, you know, when we're so focused on the young kids um, that you forget that there's a lot of lessons to be learned from a prior generation. And then a lot of the stuff that you think is fresh and that you're going through now potentially happened before. Um, well, and I, I have so I'm a I love reading I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a huge reader and it's funny I often get most of what I feel are my strongest cinema ideas from novels and that's not I, I don't think the novel is analogous to a movie at all in fact I think the thing closest to movies or music and we can talk about that another time but I do like engaging in another medium because then I have to translate that medium to the cinema medium. And for some reason, reading a novel, uh, that always stimulates the juices to think cinematically. And, but, but the thing about reading that I would say to anybody is the more that you read and the more that you go back as far as you can and read everything, I, it is of tremendous comfort to me because you start to have to accept certain things that everyone writes about, which is like, no one is shielded from catastrophe. Horrible things could happen to you. Death is going to come to all of us. The The world goes through these uh, spasms of peace and war, 
of you know f- creative fallowness and then creative renaissance and w- when you read all that stuff you just start to it, it, i don't know what what it would be but it evens you out yeah. you know you don't get like you know i think one of the things is that when you're high and i don't mean like drug induced high but when you're really like having a great day it's actually helpful because there's a little voice inside you that's like well you're gonna get smacked in the head by a two by four that's gonna happen (laughs) and then when you get smacked in the head by the two by four and you're on the ground bleeding with a concussion there's a little voice that's like yeah but this concussion you're gonna get over it you know if you can pick yourself up and and that has really helped me through the oscillations you know you and i are i'm still as committed now to having a feature film career as a writer director as I was when I was 18 at film school. It didn't happen for me at 25 the way I wanted it to happen. But even reading has allowed me to be like, well, okay, I'm not going to be the youngest. I'm probably not going to be the most prolific because when I start making movies, I'm going to be older. But even reading helped me to go, well, you know, Louis Bunuel or, or um, you know, uh, Akira Kurosawa or uh, Satyajit Rai or, you know, like a number of amazing directors, Hal Ashby, even though he was editing when he was younger, like they, for whatever reason, they were making movies in their late 30s, early 40s. So don't sweat it. Your time is your time. And I, I'll shut up after this, but like I read the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu. I'm also very spiritually promiscuous and I I love to like, I'm Irish Catholic and Russian Jew. That's my dad and my mom and my dad. But my dad was a spiritual seeker, got me into Zen and, and, you know, from there Hinduism and the Tao. And, you know, supposedly Lao Tzu told Confucius that the sum total of his wisdom, Lao Tzu's was like, nobody can force when their moment comes. Your moment comes when your moment comes. And when it comes, you better take advantage of it, but you can't force it. And that really helped me be like, okay, well, it's going to come whenever it comes. So, you know, I'm just going to try to be in the best position, God willing, when it comes. Dude, I completely agree. You and I are in the same boat. So for me, it was the same thing. I came, I came to that conclusion from different sources. But at the end of the day, it's like, you just got to spend that time instead of spending, which I did. And I don't know if you're the same way, but in my 20s, I was just fucking irritated all the time because like, <laughs> I know I can do this. I know I can make this happen. And and so you, you the irritation uh, becomes cynicism and the cynicism sort of starts to take over a bit and you you forget the love. And there were different periods of my time where I felt like, just the rejection and the anger of this business sort of got me into that position. And then you have to sort of break out of that shell and and go, look, man, Ridley Scott didn't do his first movie to his fucking 40 something, you know? Sure, right. sure, he did a bunch of commercials and stuff, but so did I. That's great. That's cool. I'm, I'm still on the right path. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's really exactly. great. You know, and, and even when you do make your first film and even when you do go through those steps, you're still going to show up on set one day and have it suck. And you're going to look around and go like, <laughs> why did it suck so hard? And like, is this my fault? And and then you go back and you listen to the people that came before you and they're like, yeah, that was because it was a Monday after a two-day break. And every Monday after a two-day break for us sucks too. And you go, ah, okay. And then once you release that stress, you go, well, this is the fucking job then. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Like the job isn't just directing all the time. Oh, all right. Like I'm like part of my task is to get over it. Ah, okay, let me get started on that. All right, let me figure it out. Um, and you just become a whole lot happier, and you just become like a whole lot more creative. I feel you know. 
No, the, 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 see, it's so funny. Our our conversation is going to be everything but the topic of the podcast. <laughs> I love it, dude. Yeah, which it. is great. That, that That's how it works, like a Russian novel. Uh, the, and yet somehow we'll come back. Like, it'll halo the the thing that's in the center. But, yep. um, you know, I was thinking about this today, too. It's funny that you're bringing that up, Mike. But, you know, like I was one of those people who always made the rookie mistake for way too long where I try to when I was writing someone an email, I would try to pour everything into the email. So the email would be like five pages long. <laughs> and, you know, that clearly I did not understand other people's time. I didn't respect their time. And no one has a time to read a five page email. No one. Not even your mom has time to read your five page email. And you know, you, someone eventually whispers in your ear, what's the result you want? Yeah. Well, the result you want is a response. So if the result you want is a response, maybe write one sentence. Hey, how you doing? You good for a call tomorrow at 1 PM? You know what? When I do that, I get almost anybody who's like, yeah, talk to you tomorrow at one because you respected their time. It was easy to answer and you learned how to write an email. Uh, and I, you know, an email is not the format for the Russian novel. Unless, you know, you're talking to your buddy who is in Prague and that's how you guys talk and you just can't see each other, whatever. Right. And you like letter writing, whatever. Right. But, um, you know, and you have to learn the medium and those practical things you're saying and those practical things marry with your hopefully divine inspiration in the muse. And that's how you get, I think, the great works of art. Fascinating. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. That's a really good way to put it, dude. Fascinating. You, because everything, everything's communication. And so you're just trying to figure out how to master, how to master each one of these mediums, whether it is writing an email, whether it's talking to your angry girlfriend in bed at night. <laughs> like, <laughs> what is the right, what, what is the right process for this? And it, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I find myself like learning it and forgetting it, learning it, and forgetting it consistently. Like I, you know, I'll come off a podcast after spending, cause this medium is about chalking and that's what it is going off on tirades. Uh, and then I'll like walk off a podcast and I'll get in a conversation with my girlfriend and her eyes are just glazing over. I'm like, Oh, my bad. I'm still in podcast talk land. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, you, you're saying that, but, but I mean, this gets at the heart of something. I, you know, I'm a, I, I, my wife and I have been married. Uh, we're going to celebrate our sixth anniversary at the end of March and nice. we've been together for eight and we've got two children, a third on the way. And, I, I, my wife, Martha, I'm so, 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 you know, it's hard to explain. There's a line in the friends of Eddie Coyle, the Bob Mitchum picture, which I'm not super hot on, but I love Bob Mitchum and I love him in it <laughs> where, have you seen that one? No, I have not. You know, it's, it's good. I, I think it's good. It's not great. You know, I know it's just not quite my frequency, but Bob Mitchum is like a petty gangster and he's talking to a younger petty gangster and he's, and Bob Mitchum has just come from his wife and he says to the young petty gangster, like, I just don't have time to get into it with you about the mysteries of marriage or married life. And the, 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 the but, but what you just said, Mike, what I'm getting at is this, is that, so Anybody who is in a long-term relationship or gets married will probably know that feeling of we've had this conversation before yep. where you just fall into rhythms and you have the same argument yep. or you're saying the same things and it gets you nowhere. Yep. And then you have that epiphany moment where you're like, wait, if I get defensive and I make points and I try to score points, all we're going to do is annoy each other and actually slide down the hill of bad communication. Yep. But if I have the discipline and the patience to just really listen to Martha and go, 
okay, well, it sounds like this was a really tough day. It sounds like you're really overwhelmed. Like, and I know I don't like to be overwhelmed. So what can I do here? And it's not that you don't want to be like, I'm overwhelmed too. Why are you unloading on me? <laughs> like I'm, I'm holding up wire, da, 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 da. You want to do that. But if you have the patience to be like, look, now is not the moment to unload on her. She's overwhelmed. And you know what? If I show a little patience right here and I just try to help her out, Maybe that's going to, maybe she'll return that to me. We have gotten so much further, her and I, when we do that yeah. than when we fall into the standard patterns. And I just would extrapolate from that when you're on a set, you know, th this is, I'll tell one more story and then we'll go wherever, but I love telling the story. Have you ever heard the story of how Aaliyah Kazan directed Marlon Brando? No, no, no. I'm, oh, I'm in. dude. I'm in. Oh yeah, dude. So like, this was a huge epiphany to me. So uh, Aaliyah Kazan you know, you know, obviously directed Brando and Streetcar on Broadway and the films and on the waterfront and Viva mm -hmm. Zapata, yada, yada. And um, he knew that Brando had a horrible relationship with his dad. Horrible. Um, and his whole life, even though Brando was always trying to connect with his dad, he made his dad like the president of his company in the 50s. Really weird story. But um, <laughs> it, still, he and his pop, he just hated his dad and he hated paternal figures. So Brand so Kazan was like, okay. But Brando always loved younger siblings, was always really protective towards younger siblings. So Kazan would always come to Brando like a younger brother. And he would be like, Marlon, I don't know how to do this scene. Like, I'm lost here. Like, could you help me out? Like, what do you think? Like, you know, I, I just like, brother, what, what would you do? And Brando would suddenly be like, okay, here's what we do, Aaliyah. I think if I play with this glove and, you know, let me, let me just try to get Eva Marie, maybe we can get through it. And, and, and cause I would be like, thank you, Marlon. And he said the big mistake almost every director made with Brando was coming at Brando like a dad. Because they did not understand that Brando could not stand that paternal dynamic. And I think that when you have that practical know-how of, hey, you can't direct every actor the same. A lot of actors don't want your two cents. A lot of actors just want to hear you be like, hey, you're like the DP. I hired you because you're great at what you do. And I suck at what you do. So I'm here if you need help. But otherwise, I'm just going to you know, let you find it. Yeah. You know, it's just it's all that practical stuff you got to have. You got to have that bag of tricks to make great movies. Oh, it's a great story, actually. Oh, it's fucking really good. Yeah, because at the end of the day, there isn't, and we, you know, we talk about this all the time. It, it, it isn't, when you're dealing with an actor, it's not like pulling a camera out going, okay, so I have to turn it on, charge the batteries, and do this stuff. It's a right. fucking human being. And, oh. and most of us. And some. Most of us have trouble dealing with human beings that are standing in line in front of you at the post office. <laughs> when you're upset. So, uh, oh, dude, that's really cool. That's really cool insight. And, I, you know, you could listen to that story and go, was he being manipulative? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe, but that's part of the job, man. And that's, that's fascinating. It is, and, you know, it's so funny you say that. I mean, it, I'll, I'll, sorry, I, I told you I got the Irish disease. I had the real, I, I was really blessed, if you'll allow me this one more story, sure. to balance it, because it all balances. Um, I actually got to be a camera operator for Haskell Wexler. Wow. And, yeah, uh, it was like one of the highlights of my life. And it was so random. He, his assistant was in a play. He was, he was going to shoot the play. And I just threw my hat in and he said, yeah, could you know, help him be an operator. And Haskell and I and a third operator uh, were just shooting a three camera setup and we all switched and I went handheld on one act. He went handheld on the other. And we just were like, here's how we're going to cover it. Right. And after that, Wexler was really cool and gave me an afternoon, gave me two hours of his time. I couldn't believe it. I went to his apartment. I brought some donuts. 
shots. And he <laughs> shot, Wexler shot Kazan's America, America. Mm-hmm. And I and, and so Wexler said, told me a story about that that is the counterpoint to what we were just talking about, where he did not like what Kazan did, where um, they weren't getting the reaction they wanted out of an actor. And Kazan just told another actor to jump on the actor's back uh, without letting the other actor know that was going to happen. And because, you know, Wexler shot it and they got the other actor being shocked and rolling with it. But the other actor like threw out his back or his shoulder or something. And Wexler told me, he was like, "I'm, I'm not down with that. You know, that was not right. So I think that there's anyway, yes, I agree with you. Being a director, you do need to know how to get the result you want, but there's also trust and you've, you've got to simultaneously get those results, but have everybody trust you. It's totally true. Like there's all sorts of stories uh, around that and you, you can dig deep into like Frankenheimer and, uh, and the exorcist and oh, Bertolucci, all those cats, all those dudes. And it's, you have to have at some point it all falls down on what your moral code is. You know what I mean? And what you're Absolutely. ultimately, what you would go for. Um, and, and then I think that a good way to sort of create a moral code for yourself is to, if you are a selfish person, I would say that at the end of the day, you also have to remember that you got to go back to the well again. Like, there, like even though you're hot shit right now, you're going to be unemployed. When this is oh, done. totally. So you got to go back to the well again. So just remember... <laughs> you know, the, what you're paying for when you do shit like that. Like, remember what the cost. <laughs> and I, man, you see, I, for, for the audience that's listening, I, I know ostensibly we're going to talk about whatever and we can, we can wrap up on that or whatever you want, Mike, but, but Dude, um, this, we just talk. So it's, yeah, it's I was going to say what, what you just got at, you know, so I, I, I think I've told this story maybe once or twice, maybe just to my family. Cause it's, it's super personal, but um, when I was four years old, I have this memory of it. Like I said, I was raised Irish Catholic spiritually and my dad is Russian Jew, but we were secular. So we celebrated the holidays, but we didn't go to temple. Um, but, but on my Irish Catholic side, we went to mass every Sunday and mm-hmm. we prayed and all that. And, um, and I'm still spiritual. Uh, but when I was four, um, I have this vivid memory of kneeling and asking God to help me be humble. And, uh, and you know, I thought about it ever since. Cause I was like, why, why is a four-year-old, why was that my prayer? Like, like what was that about? Like, why would it, but, and this gets into things and I'm not trying to push people there, but I, I often wonder if reincarnation is a thing because when you're a kid, supposedly you're very close to where you came from and you forget it as you become an adult, which is why supposedly kids see ghosts a lot more than adults do. Hmm. Um, but, um, the, 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 and then you forget, and then maybe you get close to it again right before you die. And, um, I've always felt that my karmic journey in this life is humility for the very reason you just said, I'm naturally very cocky, Mike, very, very cocky. And I always (laughs) have been. And when, when I get impatient or in my worst impulsive moments, I'm the kind of person who's like, whether I say it explicitly or through my behavior is like, F you, I know better. This is how we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And you're boring me and wasting my time by making me have to explain it to you. I mean, that obnoxious, I can get that obnoxious. (laughs) And, um, uh, I have, I have suffered a lot because of that behavior and, and rightfully paid the price of alienating people by that. But, but I feel when you're humble and it's hard, 
But when you're humble, that doesn't mean that you're weak or meek. You can be humble and assertive. And I think that that sometimes people, that's like, wait, how do you thread that needle? But when you're humble and assertive, as you just said, you're not making enemies. Um, You're taking the time. You're like, look, I think this is how we do it. This is why I think this. But what do you think? Maybe I'm wrong. I'm humble enough to think maybe this approach might not be it. Now, at the end of the day, as a director or whatever, you have to say, okay, I've heard everybody, or I've heard as much as we can hear, given we have to get 20 shots in this day. This is how we're going to do it. But you can still be humble about that. You can still say, maybe these other ways were right, but this is how we're going to do it. We're going to put the camera here. It's going to be a 20 millimeter, and we're going to do this, this, and this. And if we have time, we'll try it your way. But if you're humble and you explain yourself and and you're open, I think everybody then responds to that and wants to contribute. But if you're a dick and you're like, uh, you know, you're just asserting yourself because you got daddy issues or you're just asserting yourself because you're a little Napoleon because of whatever, <laughs> you know, you, you're a child of divorce and one of your parents was an alcoholic. Like, okay, that can be movie making for you, but that's not going to get great stuff. That's just you working out your trauma. So, you know, it, it, you're just getting at the heart of, I think great movie making is being humble, but being assertive, being open, but also at the end of the day saying, I do have an idea of how to do this. I just want to let the audience know that uh, Craig and I did not prep any of this before we had this conversation, because what you're saying is what I say on the show all the time. It, it, <laughs> and it's nice to hear it from stranger, because we're just meeting. Like, this is a first-time conversation, and I know it sounds like we've been hanging out for quite some time. Not at all. Mike and I met an hour ago. Yeah, so this is, this is fresh. <laughs> but, yeah, dude, completely. Completely. And... and mm, I, being a guy that I've never been a person like that when I was growing up that I would share my feelings easily. Like this is stuff that I've talked with my girlfriend about recently. Like I'm not the type of individual that will openly Mm. like have patience for emotions sometimes, but uh, understanding these things and learning these things, sometimes the hard way, which it sounds like you probably learned the hard way for some. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. um, You, you come out of it not not being reprimanded. I don't feel like I had to reprimand myself. I just sort of come out of it as an individual that looks at how things work. And so as I come out of this doing things the wrong way, and you guys have heard my stories about how I threw chairs around on sets when I was younger and all sorts of bullshit, and seeing the effects of that, and then finding the joy in the other way. And there's, there's truly a joy in being a collaborator because there's surprise. And I think the hardest thing as a, a director for me is that as we conceive these ideas and the storyboard, these ideas, you write out shot lists, you fucking, you're in it. Like you're in these ideas. And these ideas are things that have come in your mind. And sometimes they don't have a full shape. Sometimes they're just a color. Sometimes they're just a sound. Sometimes it's an emotion. And these ideas that you're just gestating for fucking years, you know what I mean? And then oh, yeah, yeah. you get to set and, you're, <laughs> and you start to put them together and you're like, this isn't close to what my idea was. This is like, I'm trying to get that vibe. And if you're a dictator, it's the struggle to try to create something that can honestly can't be created because you've, you've created this idea in a non-physical realm that doesn't have gravity, doesn't have any of that shit. And so mm-hmm. then the joy of collaboration for me is that this idea flourishes into something that is surprising to me and surprisingly good to me where i see it and i go fuck that's a great idea 
How the fuck did you come up with that? That is a fucking great idea. Or if you're on set and someone walks in with an option and you go, huh, how did you come up with this? And they go, well, when I was a kid, I was raised and I saw that, but, 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 and you go, all your fucking history made this thing really great right now. I want you to know that, that your, your life experiences made this thing right now. And this thing's really good. And being able to be in that situation where you see that, and I think a lot of directors take credit for it. I don't. It's like you're a curator at that point. It all comes back mm. to this human curation shit. You're a curator at that point. Someone shows up with a tray and you go, give me the cheeseburger, give me the fries, and give me the shake. Okay, good. Let's go. Roll. And I don't take credit for that stuff. I don't believe in genius directors. I believe that there are people that have learned how to observe the world around them and how to make the right selections to make something that's great, how to drive an out-of-control train uh, and bring it into the station. You know what well, I mean? You, you, yeah, well, it's so funny. You know, my trinity of directors, and I, I love so many directors, so I don't want to be misunderstood. There are easily 20 or 30 directors that I, I'm very obsessed about and I watch all the time. But I, when I give a shorthand of my trinity, it's Akira Kurosawa, Jean Renoir, and John Ford. Mm-hmm, um, and, mm-hmm. and they're just, for me, for whatever reason, um, my trinity. And, and John Ford, you probably know this, and you maybe even talked about it. You know, he's here's a guy who knew exactly what he was doing, would really hide and obscure his art, had a 60-year career, um, but he would always tell everybody that anything good that happens in a movie is an accident. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that was, if if people know Ford or you've seen Ford in interviews, I I think that's him being contrarian because he was just Irish and contrarian. And he didn't want people to know that he was a sensitive poet, which he was. uh, And it was just a different time because you you can't watch his movies and be like, come on, homie, you you clearly storyboarded all those shots. (laughs) Like you can't watch (laughs) Quiet Man when John Wayne goes and Maureen O'Hara is cleaning the cabin or, stagecoach or you know grapes of wrath when they're doing the whole sequence when tom joad gets home and hears about how the families were cleared out you were like you put the camera there for all of these amazing dissolves and cuts and sound and but nevertheless what you said you know my whole feeling about it uh, is that I am someone who I believe in absolute preparation. Like I actually hand draw, I storyboard. I I, I can't even shot list. I, I draw it out even though my drawings are not great. Um, I, I think about the editing. I don't even do like, okay, we're going to have – you know, a single on character A and a single on character B, and we're going to cut them together. I draw when we're on character A and when we're on character B, but I do that so that when I come to set and somebody uh, was like, oh, you know, it'd be funny. Or like, what if she came in or she's in the background? I, I know how it was all going to cut together to begin with. And I can actually improvise or go off script with total, I think it's insurance. And, you know, yep. like Kurosawa used to call these things kiln changes. So you make the pot, but when you put it in the kiln, sometimes things get in the kiln that make the pot come out different mm-hmm. and the glaze. And mm-hmm. I think it's through all this crazy prep that you can go on the set and then be open to ideas because you know how it's going to weave into the hole. <laughs> I love it, dude. I love it. I love it. It's really good. And I'm happy that we broke off on this this tangent for this conversation because I, I feel like it was such a natural path for it and it's just nice to hear it coming from a fresh voice 
So uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate your patience to go off book with this because I think it's I think it's really great, dude. I think it's really great, and I think it's. Well, it's thank you for having me on, Mike. Well, I mean, the honor is mine. Well, dude, I, I, I how's your time? You still got time? I got about uh, five ten. So if there's okay. anything where we got to talk about the the whatever, this would be the time to do it because probably two ten I gotta bounce. It's all good, man. I know you're busy. Um, well, let me just rope it around because we went off on such a great tangent, and I wanted to make sure that at least the fellow folks out here in Los Angeles and even the folks that are in different cities that are are putting on their own screenings and they're putting t- together stuff. I want to talk about um, the Secret Movie Club a bit. And, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've, I, I'm sure you can't count how many screenings you've been a part of at this point, right? It's funny. I was, I was looking at my, uh, we, we sell our tickets through Eventbrite and it tells you how many past events you've had. Um, and that we didn't start using Eventbrite for a year or two. So we, Secret Movie Club has put on over 500 events. <laughs> <laughs> and so with that being said, do you do you sit through all the screenings or do you just sort of come in an intro and sometimes bail? Are you always there? Or? No, I, I'm always there. Um, there, there was, it's funny, I, I actually remember the two or three where I couldn't be there the bulk of the time. And that was because a, a family friend passed sure. away and I went I went to the wake uh, in the middle of the, the screening. It was uh, Jason and the Argonauts, Ray Harryhausen's Jason and the Argonauts, because I loved Marvin Farber so much. He was so, so important to me and my grandparents. Um, but, uh, the, the, no, you know, I, and I never want to lose this. Uh, I don't, I was just telling a team member the other day at the drive-in. I don't, I've seen when Harry met Sally five, 10 times, we showed it twice. And the second time I still got in the car and I still watched it. And a team member was talking to me because they, they understandably thought, oh, well, you just saw it last night. Now we, you know, we can talk. And I was like, I'm sorry, homie, I'm getting into the story. <laughs> like, I just got to watch this movie again. I, it's just something in my, my nature. So I, I, and I've always actually felt that Secret Movie Club weirdly was like me getting my doctorate because uh-huh. I've now sat through 500 plus movies with an audience. And you can't do that at film school in the same way. And to sit there and be like, oh, the laugh happened here. The jump happened here. Man, this is always happening here. Uh, The audience is always tuning in here. Horror films are always killing. Oh, these slice of life movies, uh, you know, and you're just watching them and, and you're like feeling the audience and reading the audience. And it, it's, it's, it's just, it, 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 it's priceless. I mean, to have that experience through 500 screenings, it, because there's an alchemy. I was just writing a friend about this. I mean, and, and I'll be super quick about this. We were having an argument about a picture in a film, not an argument, but you know, a movie discussion about a recent picture. And, and I really admired it. Um, Charlie Kaufman's I'm thinking of ending things, but I, I felt like the it's on Netflix and people should see it. It's wildly ambitious. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, have you seen it? Not like, yet. No, no, no. It's on my e- list. E- wildly ambitious. Um, but I felt like there was almost, um, almost like a disdain for entertaining or engaging the audience. Like I almost felt like Charlie Kaufman felt if he tried to do that, it, it was not what his art was about. And I'm, I don't know Mr. Kaufman and, and I'm not putting that on him and that may have just been, I was wrong and I'm still thinking about the movie. And my friend was really up on it. And I was just saying that I love challenging movies. I mean, I, you know, and the example I used to him is I love, um, you know, Claude Lonsman's Shoah, this nine hour documentary about the Holocaust. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I watch that almost every year. That is no one's idea of an easy film to engage with. <laughs> but somehow Lonsman thought through this rigorously 
And he made a movie that you're fascinated to engage with. And I think there's an alchemy between audience and, and movie maker. That's what I'm trying to say. And so to sit with an audience, you just sit in that alchemy. And uh, so I invite anybody who, who would like to come to a secret movie club. And you're going to have a lot of people who stay in the lobby and debate at the end. I'm envious of that. I'm 100% envious of that. I love, it's like, it's like being a chef in a kitchen and then never going out onto the fucking uh, service floor to see how people like your food. Oh, you got it. it you, like you totally. And, and then there's something really contagious about it because look, I, whether or not you're going to admit it at home, folks, there are moments where like you're emotionally impacted by a scene and you don't let yourself feel emotionally impacted by that scene. You know what I mean? There have been times yeah, yeah. where, I forget what I was watching recently. Oh, I was watching Chef. I was watching um, Favreau's Chef. And there was a moment yeah. between him and the son where like I'm sitting there on the couch and I'm getting misty. And my girlfriend looks over and she goes, you're getting misty. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not getting misty. There's nothing misty about this. And she goes, you're getting misty. But if you're in that situation with another person, if you're in that situation with a theater, you can't help but give into it because it's everywhere. It's all around you. Those emotional reactions. It's, I don't, I can't explain how it happens. It's a very animal instinct kind of thing that happens, but it's what makes it better. It's not going to the theater because the screen's bigger. It's not going to the theater because there's fucking 3D. You go to the theater because of that, because it makes the emotional connection better with these things. Um, and I mean, that's always my sales pitch. But um, with you, let me ask you this before we let you roll, because um, this conversation has been fucking yeah. phenomenal. And honestly, I, I ask anything, dude. I'd have you back on the show again because I feel like you and I could talk for um, like two hours. Um, but it'd be an honor. Thank you. I would say this with all the screenings that you've been a part of and all these, all these, uh, films that you've shown, is there an audience reaction to a movie that you remember above the rest of them? And if so, what's the movie and what's the scene? And I know that's a hard question to hit you with. No, it's a, it's a great question. And, and it, I'll answer it in, in bullet points, not necessarily, uh, like one, because there have been a number of times that, um, I've really, I remember vividly, but, but uh, three that are illustrative, uh, is, uh, most recently we showed, uh, Zack Snyder's remake of Dawn of the Dead at the drive-in. <laughs> and uh, now I'm a huge fan of the opening of that movie. And I think the whole movie is, is a blast. I just think that those first 20 minutes are, you know, I I'm such a fan of Romero's original. Uh, that's my favorite zombie movie, the original Dawn of the Dead, mm -hmm. that I went into that one being like, there's no way, why, why are you doing this? Why are you remaking it? And I was blown away at the first 15 minutes. And then the rest of the movie, I was like, man, super solid. But anyway, there's a moment towards the end of that movie where they're getting away in the van, to try to get to the boat and they turn a curve or something. And some dude has a chainsaw and accidentally saws through a living human being on the truck. <laughs> and I just happened to be walking from our porta potty to our concessions table at the drive-in and five cars all like every I heard like simultaneously fuck and like five cars bounce they all literally moved at the same time because they were clearly people who hadn't seen the movie and it was great even at a drive-in to see a Spielbergian moment where you didn't see the reaction inside but you saw all the cars bounce <laughs> and I, that was the most recent then another which I've seen both as an audience member and as a programmer in my top 10 of all time is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window. Mm -hmm. uh, it's my favorite Hitchcock. 
and um and and we can get into the vertigo rear window debate if it's even a I'm a rear window time. guy so you don't have to we're good there yeah I'm a rear window <laughs> guy too by the way David Lynch is a rear window guy yeah. uh, <laughs> just for homies who want to know uh, but uh, and I get vertigo and I love vertigo I I don't actually want to sometimes that's a false dichotomy yet I'm rear window Mike you get it your rear window so um. I've seen this numerous times and I never get tired of it. So we showed Rear Window and for people who've never seen the movie, there's a moment towards the end where Grace Kelly sneaks into the apartment to get the wife's wedding ring to prove that the husband actually did murder her. Mm-hmm. And Stewart's looking through his camera and he looks down and, and, and Hitchcock does that POV thing where we see what Stewart, who's a photographer, is seeing through his still camera and he's using a telephoto lens and he sees the ring but then he tilts the camera up and there's the husband who's looking at the ring and then looks directly into the camera and realizes the person who's been spying on him all the time is Jimmy Stewart. And that moment when he realizes who's in it and you're like, oh no, Jimmy Stewart's screwed because Jimmy Stewart has a broken leg. Every time, and this is a movie that was made 70 years ago, the whole audience is like, oh no. <laughs> and I, I love that reaction. You young and old, everyone's like, oh, oh no, you got found out, son. And that's like, that movies can do that. We're like, we're all sitting in a theater watching a movie made 70 years ago. And everybody is like scared for Jimmy Stewart. That's magic. I don't know. And that's tapping into something I can't even put to words. And the last thing I'll tell you, which is kind of a letdown from that story, maybe, maybe not, is I'm a huge fan of this uh, Ukrainian film, The Tribe. Uh, have you seen it? No. Oh, dude. It's, um, I think, 2014, but it's in the last 10 years. And it's about this uh, high school for the deaf in the Ukraine. There's no dialogue in the movie. The whole movie is signed, and they never translate what they're signing. Uh, you, so you just, but you don't need it. It's, it's like the greatest of silent cinema, even though there's sound. I mean, you hear everything that's going on. But basically, these teens uh, drink and the girls uh, and the guys, they go to truckers and the girls sell their bodies for money. And then this one guy who, a teen guy, deaf guy who gets part of this group falls in love with one of the girls and it's this story. And there's one of the most amazing sex scenes I've ever seen in my life in the film. Um, but the ending, which I will not give away here, it's going to, yeah. uh, what happens at the end. And I still have people come to me who were at that screening because I'm, I, you know, as, as a programmer, you can't just program the hits. There is nothing inspiring about that. And so what I always try to do is I try to program so that we can meet our bottom line, but every month get in one movie at least that's like, okay, maybe 10 people will come to this. You know, maybe 10 people will come to the tribe, but I got to do it so people know that we're legit and we believe in cinema and, and we are about cinema. And when I did the tribe, I think we had 50 people, 60 people at the Vista. I was totally happy with that, but I still have people who attended that who are like the tribe, man. That ending, that ending was nuts. And uh, so that means a lot to me too. So there it is. That was a surprise episode for me. I had no idea that we were going to go on the tangents that we did. And I'm happy we did. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Uh, it was very enlightening for me. I have a list of movies that I want to watch. I, I honestly want to watch Dawn of the Dead again. Because as you described that final scene, I'm like, man, that movie's really great. And I ended up on this tangent the other day where I, I realized, I don't know how I didn't know this, but James Gunn wrote that remake. That was one of James Gunn's scripts. Weird, right? 
So I'm going to go back and watch that again. The Tribe sounds fucking fantastic. If you guys haven't seen Rear Window, watch Rear Window. There's a reason why we're both Rear Window fans. I think it's his best movie. <gasps> yeah, I know. It's better than fucking Psycho, right? It's better than North by Northwest. I think it's his best movie. So definitely go check out Hitchcock's Rear Window. And um, thank you guys for listening. And do this. As soon as you can, go see a movie. Go with your friends. Go to a drive-in. If you're out here uh, in California, go check out thesecretmovieclub.com. See what's screening. The thing was such a fun experience. Um, and if you guys are in New York, if the theaters are open, I hope you guys are going. Send me pictures of you in a theater. I'm excited to see you guys do it. Now do it safely, of course, um, and use your better judgment, but we're gonna get there. It was so inspiring to hear him talk about how he thinks that this shit's gonna be great after. I, I think so too. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, stick around. Plenty of more episodes on the way. Um, and uh, as always, I'll see you next Tuesday. <laughs>